When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Starbucks pistachio latte will transport you to your happy place. The comforting flavor of pistachio, warm espresso and milk, all with a brown buttery topping. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023 where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. Hi, this is Tony Gilkison, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcasts. Pantheon Podcasts presents from Hollywood, California, The Devil's Music with Pleasant Gaming. You are invited to join the Hollywood princess as she explores her lifelong pursuits in the occult, sex, love, and that sinful rock and roll. Ladies and gentlemen, step into the dark parlor of Pleasant Gaming as she brings you the devil's music. Hi, I'm Pleasant Gaiman, and welcome to The Devil's Music, a Pantheon podcast. As the devil himself apparently once said via the Rolling Stones, please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a rock and roll witch from Hollywood, California. My obsession with music and the occult started at the age of 12 and is still going strong. During the 70s, I was one of the first punks in Los Angeles. I worked at the Whiskey A Go-Go and had a Xerox fanzine called Lobotomy, which led me to writing a rock and roll gossip column in the LA Weekly, which in turn led me to writing for every major rock publication you could think of. In the 80s through the 90s, I fronted three bands. I'm a best-selling author with eight books out and more on the way. For the past 30 years, I've been a professional dancer who's toured around the globe teaching and performing, and you've probably seen me dancing in a number of music videos, feature films, and documentaries. I'm also an actor with several film credits. Find out more about me at PleasantGaiman.com. I'm really excited to be a part of the Pantheon podcast network of rock and roll shows. Everyone at Pantheon tells spectacular stories about the music we love so much, each one with a different twist. 
Find them all at PantheonPodcast.com, as well as on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Radio.com, Pandora, hell, I just had to say that, anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what we're doing here, head on over to PantheonPodcast.com and share a show with a friend, or I'll put a spell on you. Kidding. Hey, this is Pleasant Gaiman, and you're listening to the Devil's Music Podcast. Today, I'm so glad to to have my guest, Javier Escovedo, on. He's a pioneer of punk rock. When he was a teenager, he started the Zeros in 1976, and by 1977, they had an album out. An all-around amazing musician. He's also the founder of The True Believers, and he's had a couple of solo albums out, too. We've been friends for I don't even know how many years. I'm senile, so I can't really count them, but (laughs) we were both teenagers when we met in, in 1977. So anyway, without further ado, here's the amazing Javier Escovedo. Hi, dude. How the fuck are you? (laughs) Pretty good. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, my God. You're so welcome. I can't even, I don't even remember the last time we saw each other. I mean, I I don't know if it's been decades or just a few years. I honestly don't remember. I know. It's all a blur. (laughs) Yeah, no shit. But I (laughs) I do remember the very first time that we met and um, I mean, that that incident for me, you know, of meeting you guys was amazing to see the zeros in action, but also um, on the gig where we met, it was, it was just incredible. It became one of the like defining moments of LA punk rock. It was, yeah. it was at the Orpheum Theater. And yeah. I, think it, I think it was the 15th of April, was it April 15th? I'm not sure, actually. You know what? I mean, I think so because the Damned played at the Starwood on the 16th and the 17th. That's and, right. Yeah, and and, um, and they were anyhow, in the audience. What? Yeah, they were in the audience. But but yeah. first, okay. So, I I um me along with all like everybody who was in the LA punk scene wound up going to Bomp Records, which wound up being your label, not, you know, just a, yeah. a few months later, but we went to Bomp Records to see an in-store appearance with the Damned and everybody in the entire punk scene was there. I went with Kid Congo and the Germs. I mean, there was like Helen Keller was there. Everyone that lived at the Canterbury was there. All the girls that um, were just about to, you know, just starting the go-go's were there. Th- this was like the event mm-hmm. of the century in LA punk rock. Yeah. And um, the germs had just barely formed. I think they'd had one rehearsal. And we met the weirdos there at Bomp Records. And um, 
you know, they said that they were playing at this little theater called the Orpheum that night, which um, the the nerves had rented out, and it was it was right. Um, it was sort of catty corner from Tower Records. Um, yeah. On Sunset Strip, on this little back alley street called Nellis, and <laughs> it was a tiny little like black box theater, which I think was like. I don't know if it was 50 or 99 seats. I think it was 50. It was really tiny. But yeah, somehow, it was small. somehow I convinced the, um, I told the weirdos that the germs should open for them. And they were kind of panicking, the germs were. But the weirdos said yes. So then we went back to my house. And how do you prepare for a gig? You you stop at a liquor store and get Chris <laughs> Ashford, who later, uh, who later, um, you know, wound up like managing the germs um, because he was legal. We got him to buy a bunch of like pink cold duck, you know, because only the best stuff for us. <laughs> and, and a lot of licorice whips, which Bobby Pin, who later turned into Darby Crash, got. And then, um, then as soon as we got back to my house, we all started taking quaaludes and drinking the cold duck. Oh my God. <laughs> I know, and, and this was, um, that was probably about four or five in the afternoon. And then, you know, the ride up to the Sunset Strip was a blur. And I was <laughs> I was still like wrapping Bobby Penn, AKA Derby Crash up in the licorice whips in the back seat. And it was all hot. It was a really humid day. And that shit was melting all over the place. And we were laying there and everyone was like out of their fucking minds. Like, you know. Oh my God. Yeah, anyway, so. Well, that gives me a great background of what of why they, it was so the terms were the way they were that day and that <laughs> night <laughs> that's hilarious know, like, even if they would have had like even if they only would have had one one um rehearsal they wouldn't have been been like that the way they are i mean we we were so fucking gone before we even got there but that's um great. Yeah, and then I think that they got kicked off stage their f very first gig because um, Bobby Darby got got peanut butter out, and that started the whole germs like food craze. That, that oh, <laughs> like I don't even know how it started, but I'm blaming it on the licorice whips and the cold duck and the quaaludes. <laughs> anyway, yeah, when they got nicely yeah. escorted off stage, then you guys came on. Yeah, that was our first show. That was our first show in LA. We had only played two shows before that, and they were both in Rosarito, Baja, California. Oh wow! I didn't. Oh, I thought. I think I just assumed they were in Chula Vista, where that's no. where you're living, right? So what? Was yeah, that we were living. We're all living in National City and Chula Vista, a suburb of San Diego. Yeah, it's like right there near the um the kind of near the border crossing right totally by the border yeah and well we we gave a uh like i saw backdoor man magazine and um you know i saw that they reviewed some demos and so i wanted to get a tape a cassette to fast freddy to see if he would review it in backdoor man and so we recorded some stuff and I gave it to a friend who gave it to a friend who gave it to Fast Freddy. <clears throat> it was Jackie Ramirez and Evie Bebo. But um, so they got it to Fast Freddy and he 
gave it to Paul Collins. And Paul Collins called me and said, uh, you know, we want you to play the show in LA. And it was totally just like wild, you know, because we were in San Diego, we we're in Chula Vista. And all of a sudden, like, we have a gig in LA. So it was really, really exciting for us. Well, I mean, like, I don't know if you realized it at the, at the time, but everybody from the LA punk scene who was there was absolutely just blown away by you guys. I mean, like, <laughs> like, seriously, like we, we were all, we were all staring in astonishment because, um, I mean, you seemed so tight to us. When I, when I say seemed so tight, I honestly don't, like that didn't even matter at the, at that point in time in punk rock because we were used to like, you know, like how you said, you'd only done two other gigs, but a lot of the bands in LA at that point had only done one other gig. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, like, I remember the Go-Go's first gig, they, they played three songs and two of them were the same song. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that. The zeros, did that, the zeros did that at a party in San Francisco once. We played like Chatterbox like five times. <laughs> but um, like I, I particularly was, so, so I was so taken with you guys because I was, I was 17 then. And I don't know, were you like, were you guys like around 14 or, or 15 or, or am I, am I like, like not remembering? Um, Baba was 16 and Robert was 17 and Hector was 17 and I was probably 18 and then I turned 19. Oh wow. Year. You guys looked you well this is this is exactly like what what I kind of wrote in my diary that you guys looked like you guys looked like a really young mixture of um you know some kind of uh you know, like, like, um, band that would be not a boy band, but like in those days, like some kind of band, like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, where you had a really uniform look and just like your songs were so fucking amazing. Like I still, I still all the time, even before you, you, um, called me like, or emailed me like a little while ago, I, I would just get like, like, don't push me around or, or something just, just um, beat your heart out, you know, like stuck in my head for hours, like, and, and not <laughs> in a bad way, you know, not like when you get like, Uga Chaka, yeah. Uga Uga or some like, song. <laughs> That's funny. But you, you just seem well, to thank me like, you. Yeah, it seemed like you just sprung like like fully formed into an amazing band that had like a total personality and look and incredible music, you know. And I think I think a bunch well, of other people thought that too. Yeah, we were it was actually like our second band. Um before that, you know, we had a song called Main Street Brat. But um see I moved from Huntington Beach to Rosarito and then back to Chula Vista. And I went to high school. Uh, I was supposed to go into um, like 10th grade. And my parents took me out of school. I was doing really badly and taking a lot of drugs and stuff. And so we moved to Mexico and I was just on the beach. And then they would leave me there all the time. And so I started writing songs and I was just reading Cream Magazine, you know, Lester Bangs and, and, you know, hearing about the glitter rock scene with Iggy and I love yeah, the Bible. Dolls. 
Yeah. So, so I got all these influences, you know, and I just loved all of punk rock. Well, it wasn't called that then. So, you know, so then I formed the, the Main Street Brats when I moved to Chula Vista with one other guy. He was a drummer. So me and him started the Main Street Brats and we could never find anybody to play with. You know, nobody, you know, nobody would play that kind of music. So when I met Rhoda, my wife, um, I met her at school and she said her brother played guitar. So I said, you know, bring him over, you know. So then uh, Robert, you know, she brought Robert over, Robert Lopez, Elvez. And so then the three of us started playing together. So, so the Zeros was actually kind of like our second band. I mean, we didn't, we only played like two shows, but, you know, so we had a little bit under our belt. Yeah, but I, I mean, it, it, I don't know, it really, it really was like, like a stunning thing though. I mean, for real, like, like, wow, that's least, cool. And I remember all, all of them, um, all of us girls talking about it, but not not like in a tiger beat kind of way, but not in a um, you know not in a like we're not we're eighteen and they're like younger than us cougar punk rock kind of way. <laughs> All of but, eighteen. No, I know. I, yeah, <laughs> I mean most of, most of us were like under eighteen, and that's why we couldn't we couldn't get into like regular gigs up here unless it was like at the Whiskey or the Roxy or the Starwood where. Um, where they actually had food, you know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, that's right. Um, so so when when something like the Orpheum came along, uh, you know, it was great because anyone anyone could go there because uh, it was a kind of totally legal gig. What did you think when you saw the damned in the audience? Because the screamers brought the damned. You you knew who they were, right? <laughs> yeah, I knew who they were, but I don't know. I was just kind of a. Uh... I was really consumed with what I was doing, you know, more than like if I was nervous about them or anything like that. I was just, uh, you know, I was really in my own head about what I was doing through that period, really. And so I was just, I mean, you know, when I heard about like Kim Fowley and The Quick, like before punk rock, you know, I thought, oh, I should be in LA and I should have a band or I should, you know, and all this stuff like that. So like I was, I was more like excited that Greg Shaw was there basically than yeah. the damn, you know? And so we met Greg Shaw afterwards and he came and talked to me and he's like, you guys should have records out. And that, that's what blew my mind. You know, wow, that happened at that gig. I didn't know that. At that gig, at that gig, he told me that. And I went home and I said, we got to go back in the studio. And so I got us back in the studio really quickly. And I recorded a tape and I drove up to Bomp. And I said, uh, you know, check this out. And he goes, okay, I want to put it out. <laughs> just as it, as it is, right? Yeah. And it was just like, boom, it just happened within... I don't know, a month, you know, it's just crazy. It was just wild back then how fast everything moved. I know, like, uh, you know, like now when, when there's social media and everything moves so fast, some things back then, even when it was just all analog and landlines and shit just happened so quickly. <laughs> I mean, 
all yeah. of it just happened so happened really quickly the only thing that like wasn't fast i think was like waiting for the um the import english magazines and papers <laughs> that were actually writing about good music as opposed to what most of american magazines except for cream were yeah. writing about because like all kind of punk was so ignored in in the mainstream in those days yeah i know it was kind of a shame but yeah. unless you were vomiting on the bill grundy show or something no. <laughs> <laughs> um but so i gotta ask you about your family because your family has a bunch of famous musicians in it too like um your your niece she would is it your niece or your cousin? Is Sheila E? Yeah, she's my niece, Sheila. Wow, yeah. So she she was amazing. And for you guys that may not know this, um, but you know, like we just have to. Uh, yeah. She was she was like sort of a, a prince prodigy, amazing person, and really great stage presence, incredible like percussion skills and singer and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then your brothers your older brothers right pete and coke yeah they were in santana and weren't they in like um another band or two together i don't yeah they they played with they recorded with malo um so they're like on suavecito and um they played with and with santana and like toured the world with santana then they formed their own band called azteca and they signed oh, to Columbia. Yeah, and they put out three records on Columbia. And it was yeah. really cool for me. Like, you know, I was really young. Like, you know, when punk rock happened, um, you know, it was great. And it was really exciting and everything. But I, I had already been like backstage at the San Diego Sports Arena watching my brothers play. And <laughs> so I, I had a little bit of like, not so nervousness kind of i don't know but i went to go see them play like all the time and it was just amazing and i got to meet a lot of cool people like sly stone and like boss skaggs and you know jorge santana just like and carlos santana who was amazing when i met him actually um i think the zeros had played like a matinee show at the mass and uh, Rhoda and I went to see Santana at um, the Shrine Auditorium. So I was backstage with my brother Pete and Sheila was there, but she wasn't playing yet. And um, so we we're hanging out and um, Pete goes, I want to introduce you to Carlos, you know? So I said, okay, cool. And this is right when he was starting his like, um spiritual meditation phase you know and he was dressed all in white he made that record with uh mahavishnu which is amazing but anyway so i went to meet him you know and i go hey you know pete goes hey uh this is my brother he, he plays in a punk rock band you know <laughs> <laughs> so I, I didn't know what to expect you know so um carlos santana he tells me he goes uh so um punk rock he goes yeah he goes yeah bill bill graham sent me the sex pistols record oh my God. yeah yeah and i was just like whoa what is he gonna say you know and he goes i listened to it once and i go whoa what is this you know he goes 
I listened to it again. And I was like, what is this? He goes, I listened to it again. And I go, he goes, yeah, it's kind of like the early who. Wow, and that's I was, true. I, yeah, and I was just like, you know, it was so cool for him to not just dismiss it, you know? And just say, oh, you know, whatever, they can't play or whatever. That he listened to it three times and then he realized where they were coming from. I, I thought that was so bitching when he said that. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I mean, yeah. <laughs> especially because I, I do remember when he was in, in that um, spiritual Mahavishnu orchestra kind yeah. of phase. But, um, you know, like, like, black magic women and all of those songs are still sound so perfect you know totally you made some great records yeah for sure Was, was was other people in your family besides like um, people that were around your old age? Like, was it like a long line of musicians or was this just like some familial explosion that just all happened at once with like everyone? Well, my father was married twice. So Pete and Coke um, have a different mother than I do. And then... Um, then, so my older brother, Alejandro, um, played guitar. And, you know, so I started playing guitar probably around 14 or so, you know. And um, I, I found out that I could kind of do it pretty quickly. And so, you know, I just took off with it, you know. And... My brother Alejandro was in a band called the Nuns, you know, eventually. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The Nuns from San Francisco. Let's, yeah, let's from take San a little Francisco. break and then we'll, we'll talk about that again. Okay. We're going to listen to some zeros right now. Okay. with Javier Escovito and that was that was the zeros who I still have earworms of all the time um 
So we were talking about um, Alejandro and the nuns. The nuns were an incredible band and um, like they're, they're sort of culty in punk rock because a lot of people don't really know who they are, but the ones that do are obsessed with them. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of bands back then thought, you know, because they saw the English bands get like the big contracts. Yeah. A lot of American bands um, wouldn't sign with smaller labels because they thought, uh, you know, next week, you know, Warner Brothers is going to come knocking, you know, but um, it wasn't that way. I don't know why it was different in America, but um, <clears throat> so they didn't make a record, which I consider their best period was when my brother was with them. You know, they made records after that. But um, it was really cool because, you know, he would come down and he would tell me about going to see Iggy at the whiskey and seeing the dolls at the whiskey and stuff like that. And I was totally into that music anyway, but it was cool because he was giving me like firsthand information. And I wanted to go to those shows really bad, but I was too young. Um, but I did get to see David Bowie and Spiders from Mars at Long Beach Arena. Did you go to that? Yeah, I went to that and I got I got um I got a seatbelt ticket on on the way there. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's funny. Breaking I mean, the law. It probably should have been a DUI, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't do that anymore. But um yeah. The, yeah. So I got to see the dolls in um San Diego and that did, was like that was life changing. Where they was played that? a place called JJ's. It was just a small rock and roll club. Um, I, I told David Johansson I saw that saw them in San Diego, and he goes, "Oh, you mean at that swabby joint?" Swabby, <laughs> surely. You know, yeah, surely. yeah, totally. San Diego's all about the Navy. So anyway, so I got to see those two bands, and that they both changed my life. You know. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, I don't I don't think a lot of people nowadays realize the humongous connection between punk and glitter and yeah. also also between like punk and and metal. And when I say metal, I'm not talking about Motley Crue who was definitely um, you know, influenced by the whole punk rock scene because they and and Van Halen was too, which people don't know Van Halen, like David Lee Roth used to go to all the gigs at the whiskey like constantly. I know. I saw him there all the time. Yeah. And the, and then also playing with um the early days of Van Halen, they used to play with like the motels and the quick constantly. That was like that was yeah. like a regular bill that happened a lot. And sometimes like the quick would open and sometimes the motels would open because in those days, they didn't have like the exact genres that they do now. You know what I mean? It was just anything yeah. that, that was later going to be called like alternative. Like they they didn't care if one was like more metal sounding or one sounded more pop. It just like it was music that wasn't the mainstream norm of like Captain and Tennille or whatever garbage <laughs> was on the radio. Yeah, but, I know. I kind of so miss that. No, I know. I miss it too, a lot. But I, I just, and when you look at those early punk rock pictures of, of like all of us, like some people look like punk, but not like what later punk, what people came to know as hardcore. They just, they, they just looked 
crazy. Some people look sort of Rocky Horror Show-ish, but not trying to copy yeah. it. A lot of people, like a lot of girls look like 20s and 30s vamps or or like someone you'd find yeah. in like, in, you know, true detective, like caught up in, in a shopping bag or something. Yeah. Like, you know, like 50s pinups or flappers. I mean. Yeah. It was yeah. cool the way it was um, because, I mean, that first year, first two years, you know, like anything went almost, you know, yeah. and it was really exciting because because not all the bands sounded the same. They didn't all play the same instruments. You know, the Screamers had two keyboards, you know, that was just amazing. You know, it was really cool. And like the weirdos, you know, they were we you know, we all had guitars and drums, but they were totally different. You know, there was a lot of difference between the bands that I think was missing later on. I, I I agree. Yeah. And I mean, the bands were like, everyone was so exciting and individualistic. And, and to me, it was clear that like each band had their own like full on like vision and and sort of persona as well as the instrumentation and the songs and that was I mean that was really cool too that was one of the things that struck me about about you guys like I said you know it just it seemed like a fully formed package and a lot of the early punk bands were like that and I often wonder if it's because I, I was so young and excited by everything you know or if it really was true and and like don't you when you, you know look back can you it seems so weird that all of that was all of that early scene was like in about a two and a half year span because it was it was I, just so, so amazing i think it's because that there wasn't a lot to go on you know what i mean there wasn't a lot to copy yet you know that you had to make it up yourself in a way you know you couldn't be bowie you know what i mean you couldn't be iggy well, some people tried, but, <laughs> but you know what I mean? You know, and so it came from all these different places, the Velvet Underground, the Dolls, you know, like, yeah. and so everybody took on little aspects of each thing and amplified them. And so it was exciting. It was different. Yeah, it was really, I mean, like going back, going back to the nuns, like Jennifer Miro was so, so incredible, you know? Yeah. I know. She she was I mean, like like a thirties chanteuse. I mean, it's like a post-apocalyptic like cult leader or something. Mm hmm. I mean, they were amazing, and uh, it was funny because uh, one time we were going to go see the the nuns, and Trudy Trudy said, "Oh, I love the nuns. They're so professional." <laughs> <laughs> It was really funny. Well, they they had like really good equipment. They had managers. They had uh, roadies. You know, none of the other bands had any of that stuff. Yeah, I know. No, no one had that. Yeah, they also had. They had really good. Um, I remember their their flyers looked really kind of polished too. Yeah, they had management and stuff. Yeah, none, none of none of everyone else had that. Like no. my, except for like the quick and the runaways with Kim Fowley. I think it was Kim Fowley's birthday yesterday or today. I'm, was it? Yeah. So um, when you guys are hearing this, you'll know what 
day or date it was recorded <laughs> on. Right on. Who were some of your favorites from um, the early punk scene, like either in San Diego or, or in Mexico or in LA or anywhere, like people that you were mm. playing with? Well, probably my favorite was the Dills. Yeah. Um, and I got to become friends with those guys. And I just love them to death. And I like the weirdos a lot. I like the screamers a lot. I like Devo. Um, and then when I moved to San Francisco, I like the sleepers. I like negative trend. Oh yeah, negative um, trend was good. Yeah, the nuns. What about oh, the I Avengers? I love the Avengers. Uh, I love the Avengers too. Yeah, Greg was an amazing guitar player. I, I was always just like, whoa, that guy's fucking good. And Danny was great on drums too, also. Anyway, so I don't know. There were a lot of good bands, man. Yeah, I saw I saw Penelope about maybe I was going to say a year ago, but kind of because of the pandemic, it might have been a year and a half or two years ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's not from early or, or exact onset Alzheimer's. It's because of the suspended yeah. animation of the pandemic, but she looked great and we hung out a little bit. Yeah, it was good. Before we went into the twilight zone. Yes, exactly. But um, so tell me what you did in the twilight zone. Like um, what, what were you doing during, during all the, the pandemic horror? Well, I was right here. I was sitting right here and I was recording. Um, you know, ever since I was a kid, you know, like before the zeros, like before the Main Street Brats, I started writing songs and I, you know, would record cassettes and sort of make an album, you know, and stuff like that. And so, you know, that's like my main thing that I, that I love to do. And so I've been sitting here recording songs and now I have, you know, now you can do it on your computer and you just need a microphone and plug your guitar in. And there's already drums on there that you could click on and blah, blah, blah. So I, I recorded tons of songs that I'm, you know, I'm making my third solo record. So I was working uh, on that. And then I want to do another Zeros album. So I was working on that. And then I would say, oh, maybe I need an acoustic record, you know. So, <laughs> so I've just been going crazy in the studio, basically. But I love it. <laughs> that's cool. I mean, that's good. You know, if, it, if, if you're doing something that you like that you can do not, you know, not in public, then it was yeah. a good pandemic. I, I had that, too. Like, I wrote, I wrote oh, a book. Cool. I wrote a book and then, you know, I just was- How many books do you have out? I have eight books out. And then wow. when, when this one comes out, will be um, the ninth one. It's, um, wow. it, got, it got a little bit postponed though because I had to get a surgery, but right before I had to get a surgery, my publisher, Iris Berry, who was also active in the-, in the Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. She um she she slipped and like literally broke her elbow, so she had a bunch of pins in her in her um arm, and that you know 
that happened when she was about to start Jack Grisham's book. And then um, everything got a little bit held up, but wow. I don't It'll 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 be fine, you know. It'll it'll come out soon. But um, yeah, that was a that was a, a good pandemic. That was kind of like me going in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you took care of it, and it's done now. Huh? That's yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, not to be left out. I had some major <laughs> health stuff happen, and a, a little while ago. But I'm back. I'm back. So. It's cool. No, that's good. What did you have COVID or something else? No, no. It was kind of like uh, you know, it was surgery, but you know, I don't really want to go into it. But no, you don't have to go into it. Every, everything, you know, everything worked out fine in the end, and I feel way better than I felt before, and so everything's good. But you know, it just comes with the territory. Yeah. I mean, uh, of our age, or just <laughs> yeah. Well, I yeah. You, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm 62. How old are you? Yeah. Do you I'm 63. Do you feel like you? I mean, I only feel like it when I wake up no. in the morning. I mean, when I creak, when I creak into action in the morning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't really, I don't really feel it. I mean. I don't know. It comes and goes. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Depends on what I'm trying to do, I guess. Yeah. Like, um, okay, let's let's have a, another little break and then and then we will come right back. Okay. Okay, Javier is back, and so are we. So, um, tell tell me about the um, or t don't only tell me, tell everyone out in podcast land about your um, your other two solo records, and then when you think that this one's gonna come out, or what the what the concept or idea of it or title is or anything. Okay. Um. Well. It's kind of funny, you know, the nerves got us our first show, the Zero's first show. And uh, I tried to write songs with Peter Case one time and we just had a blast, you know, it was great. <laughs> we just talked about everything and we didn't get any music. I mean, we wrote some songs and stuff, but what I think what was, uh, he doesn't need me and I sort of, don't need him in a way like I guess we write our songs by ourselves anyway so we kind of but it was it was sure was a blast to hang out with him anyway so he goes he goes you got a solo album out and I was like no you know so I went home and I was like 
why don't I have a solo album? It never occurred to me. I don't know why. So I started working on it. The first demos I did were with Tony Kinman and Ryan Adams and Denny Sidewell from Wings, you know, and it was weird because I got sober in 2000 and that's when I started recording. And so I kind of didn't have my land legs and the guy who was running the studio made all these technical mistakes. Anyway, so I didn't put that session out. I still have it. And then I kept recording and recording and recording. And I had done a tour of uh, Scandinavia with um, a band called Chariot, which was, uh, you know, Bill Bartell from Pat Fear from White yeah. Flag. Yeah. yeah. So he would, you know, like when the Zeros did that reunion show at the Palace and mm -hmm. the Go-Go's played and X played, I think, yeah. and all these bands played, it was a benefit for Craig Lee. Right. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, um, so from the bags for you, guys. right? Greg Lee from the, the original bag. bags, and then he was a really great music journalist too. Yeah, he he wrote for the LA Weekly, but um, so after that show, this kid comes up to me and goes like, "Oh man, you got to record a single for my label, you know?" And it was Bill Bartell, you know. I don't know if you met him. I'm sure you did. Yeah, yeah, that beer from White Flag. And he was this crazy kid. I mean, he was, he was younger than me, but not that much younger, but anyway. So, so we decided to do a single, like we hadn't really thought about playing. So anyway, we did a single for him. And then I just started recording more and more. And um, so <clears throat> I got involved with a Spanish label. So that's what I did my, um, first solo record on and meanwhile back and forth recording zeros records and then the last solo record i well the first one's called city lights and it's on folk records f-o-l-k and um the other one is called kicked out of eden and <laughs> that's and that's on um Oh God, Sauce Tex Records from oh, yeah, uh, Tex. yeah from Texas yeah, and I'm recording a new one, and I I recorded too many songs and you know I'm almost done I'm almost done with it, but it's taken me forever. But it's what I love to do anyway. So it's cool. do you know who's gonna put that out or not? Or you don't know yet? No, I don't. I don't know who's going to put it out, but I have a manager now, Mike Weber, and he's from Kansas City, and I met him way back in the 80s in the True Believers, and um, he's actually responsible for the Zeros documentary, because um, he talked to his friend, Anthony, Anthony Ledeish, and um, so he he's the director and so he got the whole ball rolling so hopefully you know um you know we'll get that record out but we got to get the documentary out and then another zeros album so it might be a while 
I'm, I'm excited for the documentary. What are you guys calling it? Do you know? It's called Beat Your Heart Out. Okay, I was I was going to say that, but then I thought maybe I was just imagining it. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. Um, That's good. Anthony chose the title, and I don't care what it's called. As long as it's coming out, I'm really excited about it. I'm really happy about it. And I don't know. It's just, it's a, it's a crazy, great feeling. Who, who else is in it besides um, getting interviewed besides me? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me see if I can remember. We've interviewed a lot of people. Um, the McDonald brothers from Red Cross. Awesome. Uh, filmed there it's the other day. Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo, um, Ronnie from the Muffs, um, Danny DeGorio from the Offs and the True Believers, Peter Urban, Peter Urban, who was our manager in San Francisco, Chip Kinman, and a bunch of people I can't think of. <laughs> cool. Well, but, that's that's a good that's a an amazing start right there. Yeah, yeah, it's really, it's really been a, a wild thing, you know, it just kind of snowballed, you know, and it's more and more, it's becoming more exciting and more interesting as we go along. We also interviewed like, um, you know, Robert's dad and um, my wife Rhoda and um, Baba's dad. And so it has this family element in it also, which is really cool also, you know, it's, it's pretty interesting actually, <laughs> you know. That's, I mean, I think it's great. Like I know, I know obviously you're so close to it, but any any kind of um, documentary about about that time period, if it's, if it's done by people that are, you know, quote, quote, sensitive to what was going on then, it's amazing because so many people are obsessed with 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 punk rock and when, when you stop and think about it like right now at this point of time we are farther away from from punk rock than when we were little um it was till till like the 20s you know like the 1920s wow. isn't that mind-boggling oh my god no i know <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's so crazy I know, but you know, we were in the, we were in the right place at the right time, you know? Exactly. I remember my mom used to say, my mom used to think it was quote, quote, a phase. And I used to tell her, <laughs> no, I think this is like, this is like Paris in the twenties or like the beats in North, North beach or the East village scene. This is, this is not, yeah. a phase. it's a, it's a, you know, it's kind of like a cultural revolution. And then she would kind of roll her eyes at me, but I had read enough at that point, even as a teenager, to know that this wasn't just like a, it wasn't a fad and it definitely wasn't a manufactured fad. It was really like a huge change of something, you know? And I think also whether people sense that or not back in the day, that's what, why everyone was so excited about it, you know? Cause it wasn't just the fact that mainstream radio was boring. This was like a whole, different thing it was like people not conforming to any kind of standard of of regular mm -hmm. everyday life that was going on in the 70s you know like yeah yeah well it was like um 
all the outcasts, you know, all the outcast weirdos, people who thought really differently, all of a sudden had a place to go and meet and talk and, you know, do their art and, you know, get in bands, make flyers, whatever, you know. And I think that was the, that was the thing that was so that was exciting for me because yeah. like I didn't know anybody who liked the Velvet Underground. You know what I mean? Right. Or like, or, <laughs> you know? yeah, or, or like, you know, who read the same books as you as you did yeah. or as I did or saw the same movies. I mean, there was there was like there was like a huge like giant frame of reference that so many people in the in the early punk scene had that was so outre at the time that like it was mm -hmm. mind blowing to meet people that like knew uh, knew who musicians or authors or filmmakers were and had the same taste as you it was it was just because that was yeah. hard to find in those days when there wasn't social media and and that shit wasn't on mainstream television or in the news or or anything you know I mean yeah I think that's why it was probably so exciting for us as teenagers you know because then there was a place for us to be you know, and and there was this awkward period, I call it, in between glitter and punk rock, you know, that kind of like nobody knew what to do in a way. Nobody knew what was going to happen, you know, and then, you know, like Patti Smith, I guess, came out. I don't know yeah. what the timeline was, but you could feel it almost happening. And then it did, you know, it was cool. Yeah, I always I always call that like, um. I always call that the fuzzy gray area between glitter and punk because my yeah. my my concept is that like anyone that was into glitter, that camp pretty pretty quickly spread into two factions. The people that went for the disco because they were there for glitter for the dancing, and then <laughs> the people that were there for the weirdness and the craziness and the artiness went to punk, you know? That's funny. What do you think about what do you think about like, um, I was thinking the other day that like, if you were a certain age, you were like a hippie. Mm -hmm. And if you were a certain age, you were total punk. <laughs> well, I think so. I think kind of, but I mean, I kind of, I grew up on a college campus in the sixties, like at, at Wesleyan. And so like I was indoctrinated into hippie stuff, but it was also like hippie, hippie in in that campus where I was growing up, hippies were the uh -huh. same as like the women's movement and the Black Panthers. And I had Black Panther babysitters and people that were like just arty, arty weirdos. So even though people were wearing like love beads or sometimes like wandering around like in a wine cloth or something on campus, like I still, <laughs> I got thrown out of well, not thrown out, but sent home from um, fourth grade because I was wearing a strike armband on one arm and a, a war moratorium armband on the other arm. And I didn't want to take it off. So my mother had to come and pick me up at school. And also my very first concert that wasn't Alice Cooper, the one that I, I chose to go to was seeing the Grateful Dead on the mm -hmm. campus of Wesleyan University with the Merry Pranksters there. and um, like a ring around the rosy circle of like probably 300 people like dancing around like holding hands and dancing around the whole concert area so um 
That's wild. I, yeah, I was kind. I was kind of in the. Um, I was kind of in, you know, as a little kid in the, in the hippie era. But because they were, because like my, you know, most of my babysitters were black men, and they were dating like white women. And this is in a Catholic town in Connecticut. Like you know, it, wow. it was. Yeah, it was very, it was very political and very like shocking to to grownups, you know. But it, it seemed totally normal to me. Um, but I do, but I do remember. Do you remember um, all the punks, or, or may, maybe not all the punks, but a lot of punks, self included. Whenever we wanted to get good acid, we'd always go to a Grateful Dead show and go to the parking lot and get it instead of getting it from like Jack in the Box on Hollywood Boulevard. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, you know the, what? what? You know what? Hmm. That's I've never taken LSD. Wow. Well, apparently yeah. you, you didn't mean to. No, I'm just, no, I'm just <laughs> totally. I totally. I can't I mean, take it anymore. But sometimes I have like um, you know, like LSD. I mean, not I can't. I'm not. I'm not sober. But I'm. I'm like you know. I drink like quarterly, maybe you know. But um. I stopped taking it like ages and ages ago. I don't even remember when the last time I did any kind of psychedelics just because it was taking my body a long time to recover. And, and you know, I've been uh, a professional dancer for 30 years and I was like, I can't like not, you know, I can't have a hangover or I can't like have yeah. have a day or two of being quiet after taking shit tons of acid. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was just, it was a practical decision. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. Um, but yeah, but that 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 hippie and um, punk element is 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 kind of true. But then, like we were saying, there was such a non-homogenous punk scene uh, in the early days, anyway. That like no matter what anyone was doing, it kind of fit. It. But do you remember? Wait, do yeah, you remember sure. when people? When people used to be somewhere like at the whiskey or the Starwood, there'd be like someone like the Damned or, or I don't know, the Dickies or someone playing and there'd always be like someone or a couple of people in tie dye in the back just doing interpretive dancing. Right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you remember some of the first bands that played like the New Wave Nights? were totally like they had long hair. Oh, yeah, they were appalling. Yeah. Yeah, but but it was really funny because it was so awkward. Yeah, you know? <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know if they they probably felt the awkwardness because I remember us giving them like, like this stink eye. <laughs> but it it was kind of funny that the first few months, you know, maybe the first six months, I don't know, were like I guess you know there really wasn't that many bands, you know, so they like you know, Kim Fowley and Rodney Bingenheimer's New Wave Nights. Yeah. And they they had a they had some kind of like hippie bands playing. I just thought it was so weird. No, but because they didn't they didn't quite get it. I mean it was weird because yeah. they were both such tastemakers in music. They knew good music, but I think just like they didn't I think they might have also been afraid to get bands that were openly calling themselves punk bands like like the germs or the weirdos because like uh, a lot of the club owners were afraid that you know like the toilets were going to get trashed or there'd be like a bunch of like mayonnaise and peanut butter on the stage or something yeah i wonder i wonder why that 
That's weird. I wonder where they got that from. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, anything else you want to talk about before we conclude this episode? Uh, no. No. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Well, um, I can't wait. I can't wait to um rave about you in the in the zeros documentary. And for you guys listening, we we don't know exactly when it's coming out, but I can tell you um and this is gonna be great. This is gonna be like the real the real zero story from from their own mouths and from the mouths of anyone that you know was around them and and loved them back in the day and still. So I know you all oh, yeah. But go ahead. I, I, I would like to say that the Zeros are going to play punk rock bowling. And what, in September in Las Vegas? Yeah, in Las Vegas. And we're going to play the Thursday. And um, Rat Scabies is playing that night. And I don't know. Check it out. I don't know what other bands are playing. And what, what, but, what um, say, say the venue in Las Vegas. Uh, the venue. <laughs> I don't even know, but okay, you can well, find it's it. Yeah, just, just bowling, Google it. bowling, but it's the Thursday before. So I, I think we I'm always gonna play go to it Thursday. Oh, cool! Yeah, I'll, awesome. Let me know. I will let you know for sure. Um, cool. And everyone else, check out Punk Rock Bowling. And um, if you haven't, wait, why was I just rubbing the microphone? I hope nobody in podcast land could hear that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> on that note, um, Javier makes me rub the microphone. No. <laughs> oh, you know what I wanted to tell you? What? Um, you know, you wrote some liner notes. Was it the Rhino compilation? Maybe, yeah. Yeah. And um, you said something about me being a heartthrob, but I love that you said whether he knew it or not. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> because that, that, that was the crucial part for me because I was totally my own world and wasn't thinking about girls really. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Well, I mean, now you know, or you know, you know when that came out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Oh, maybe that's why I was rubbing the microphone, baby. Oh, yeah. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's what reminded me. No, I'm just kidding. All right. Talk to you later. <laughs> okay, you guys. Talk to you later, Javier. That was the amazing Javier Escovedo. And, um, he is, he is just fabulous. Wasn't that great? Um, I hope you enjoyed listening to him and listening to all his amazing songs and look for more music coming out and the Zero's documentary, Beat Your Heart Out, even if you don't know if people are beating for you. <laughs> okay, bye. Okay, bye. It was so great to talk to you. <laughs> Yeah.
The Devil's Music is written and hosted by Pleasant Gaiman. Produced by Aaron Alden. All sound design by Jerry Danielson of Busy Signal Studios. And of course, is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Find all of our shows at pantheonpodcasts.com. Our social presence is at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found wherever you get great music. Please pick up these important and fantastic tracks. And now another no-brainer money-saving tip from Progressive. Marcus, what happened? I was changing my oil and I spilled some on the floor. Oh, we use these $50 bills to wipe it up. Perfect. Got any more? Yeah, yeah, take a couple hundred. Stop. Instead of using money, use an old rag. And here's a better tip from Progressive on how not to waste money. Don't pay too much for car insurance. Drivers who switch and save could save hundreds. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Potential savings will vary. At the Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.